This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Welcome to your review of relapse prevention, brought to you by allceus.com. In this course, we're going to define the stages of readiness for change, identify the most common relapse traps, discuss the purpose and procedure for relapse prevention planning, identify ways to individualize relapse prevention plans based on temperament. We've all heard of the stages of readiness for change. These were postulated by Prochaska and DiClemente many, many years ago. And it goes basically pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. And some people say relapse, but I don't believe that relapse has to be part of the stage of readiness for change. In pre-contemplation, the person you're working with doesn't believe they have a problem. So you can work to establish rapport, help them learn about how their use or their behavior may be detrimental to them, and give them information on risks about the pros and cons of their current behavior. These stages of readiness for change don't just apply to addiction. They can also apply to um, depression, anxiety, just about any behavior that someone may want to change. In contemplation, the person's starting to recognize that they're not living their life to the fullest. They're not as happy as they could be, or maybe they've got a little bit of a problem, but they think they can still handle it. So during this time, it's up to us to help them discuss and weigh the pros and cons of using or the current behavior, emphasize their free choice and responsibility because they don't want to feel pigeonholed or pushed into something. They're going to push back if you push. And we want to elicit self-motivational statements. For what reasons do they want to change? What's the benefit to them of doing something different? In preparation, we can help them clarify their goals and strategies because they've realized they've got a problem. They're not ready to do anything about it yet, but they've realized they've got a problem and they're starting to make a plan. We can offer a menu of options, intensive outpatient, 12-step meetings, one-on-one outpatient, different readings, different self-help groups, whatever, to help them see that there's a variety of different treatment options that can help them meet their needs. And then we negotiate a contract and help them plan. One of the main things that people who come to us have problems doing is setting goals and figuring out how to get from point A to point B when it comes to their own behaviors. They may be very, very talented business people. They may be very, very talented at a lot of things, and they can take a piece of wood and turn it into something fabulous, or they can take an idea and turn it into a program. But when it comes to their own life, they're not so good at actually applying those same principles. So what we want to do is take the knowledge they already have about how to solve problems and how to get things done and help them apply it to their own life. In the action phase, we want to negotiate the action plan. We want to start setting timelines. We want to write things down. Acknowledging difficulties and supporting attempts. Because most people, I'm not going to say everybody, but most people are going to start and then they're going to stumble. They won't necessarily have a full-fledged relapse, but... The chances of somebody starting at pre-contemplation and zooming all the way through to maintenance and never having a trip is unlikely. 
So we help them acknowledge their difficulties and look at them as blind spots or something that they can learn from so they can figure out more about themselves and how to prevent that behavior from happening again. We help them identify risky situations and coping strategies. Again, work with what they already have. Work with the skills and tools they've already used. They've probably tried to quit on their own. What's worked, even if only for an hour or a day or a week? And then we can work from there to tweak that and make it into a lifestyle change. Help them find new reinforcers. When you go on a diet, you're not going to replace chocolate with celery because celery is not nearly as yummy. The same principle applies to other behaviors, and it doesn't really matter what it is. That behavior served a purpose, and it was rewarding in some way. So if we take away that behavior, we're sort of taking away that reward. In the case of addiction, it made pain stop, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain or both. So what are we going to do to help this person stop the pain that is going to be roughly equally as effective? And we want to support perseverance or sticking to the plan. When the going gets tough, they stuck through it and they got themselves moving on instead of hightailing it back into pre-contemplation and saying, you know, y'all are making more out of this than it really is and it's not a problem and whatever, I got it and never coming back again. In maintenance, you can support and affirm changes, rehearse new coping strategies and review goals. Maintenance isn't just keeping on, keeping on, doing the same thing with no change because life changes. We grow, we move on, things happen. And during the maintenance phase, which can be the rest of the person's life, we have to help them identify and rehearse new coping strategies for when things start to get really tough. We want to help them review their goals for where they want to go a month from now or six months from now. We don't want to get too far out into the future because then you start talking about woulda, coulda, shouldas, and things like that. You want to remind the client about new tools, develop an action plan, remind them of their risky situations, and have them rehearse periodically coping skills for each risky situation. For example, for a lot of people, the holidays are risky situations because Family relationships aren't so hot, so it's very stressful. What do you do to deal with those besides going out and getting high? Encourage participation in 12-step or other support group programs and encourage the pursuit of hobbies, hobbies and cultural activities. Why? Because if you're engaging in positive activities, pro-social things with other people who aren't using, you have less time to use and probably less desire because you have the positive social support. When we talk about relapse, it comes in stages or components, if you will. The emotional stages of relapse, if, and I don't like the word stages, but we'll stay with that for right now. People start feeling a whole lot of anxiety. They become intolerant. There's a lot of anger, irritability, resentment, defensiveness, mood swings, and then they start to isolate. Most people feel these feelings. There is nothing wrong with feeling these feelings. It's when they dominate your life or start to overwhelm your coping skills that you're going to get into trouble. In recovery, when you start to feel anxious, you say the serenity prayer, you call your sponsor, you do a variety of different things. When someone who is in the emotional relapse 
starts to relapse. They start to feel anxious. They start craving, and then they start to withdraw. They don't reach out and try to get rid of that feeling. It's almost like they're nurturing it and waiting for an excuse to use. Mental relapse means thinking about people, places, and things you used to be around. Thinking about triggers for use. Glamorizing or romanticizing the past use. Lying about where you've been, what you've been thinking about, whether you've been having cravings or urges. And hanging out with old using friends. Now, if those friends are in the program, you may see them a lot. But the chances of success, if a bunch of you used to use together and you're hanging out in just the general area and being successful is slim because with the rate of relapse and the rate of people who just really aren't ready yet to take that action step or go into the maintenance phase, there's a really strong chance that somebody in that group is going to relapse and bring the others down. So we encourage you to spend a lot of time in early recovery, especially with people who have significant sobriety. It doesn't mean you can't see your old friends at meetings and at the different social activities, but you don't want to hang out exclusively with people who only have a week, a month, six months of sobriety. Physical relapse involves intense cravings and possibly use. It's important for everybody to recognize relapse pitfalls, and the 12-step programs have identified a mnemonic, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Hungry is not just physical hunger. Now, our body needs nutrients in order to make the neurochemicals so we can feel happy, to rebuild and reestablish equilibrium that was thrown off when we were using so it's important to have good nutrition and plenty of water to flush out toxins and all that kind of stuff. But hungry can also mean social hunger or hunger for love, hunger for something to fill a void or a pit. And it's that void or the pit inside of you because you don't have a relationship with yourself that can really come back and bite you in the butt. So hungry. And we'll talk more in lonely. Angry. It's anger and irritability at others, at yourself, at situations, and just generally being snitty. If you get up on the wrong side of the bed one day, it happens. How are you going to deal with that so you don't go around seeing the glasses half empty all the time? Pretend like you're happy. Bake it till you make it. We've all heard that one before. You also have to deal with the sources of your anger because that tells me that you're fearful of something and you're trying to protect yourself from rejection, from failure, from the unknown. You kind of feel like you need some support or some grounding. Talk to your sponsor. Talk to your higher power. Look at your goals. Whatever it works for you to help you get regrounded and figure out what this burr is under your saddle. Loneliness and an inability to be by yourself without using. If you're lonely or whenever you're alone you want to use, that tells me you don't feel comfortable being in your own skin. Many people with addictions rely on everybody else to tell them, it's okay to breathe the air. You're okay. In recovery, you need to be able to say, I'm okay. I'm all that, and at least a half a bag of chips today. So I'm okay being me, and if you don't like it, you know, too bad. But as humans, we also need people who 
interact with us. We weren't meant to be hermits living in a cave out in the middle of Never Never Land. We need people we can talk to and interact with. Some people, my husband for example, are introverts and they only need a couple of good friends. They actually get more stressed out when they're in a big group of people. That's fine. You, your sponsor, your home group, whatever, whatever it takes to make you feel less lonely and isolated. Making sure that you have at least three people, you know, my fa fabulous number three, three people that you can call if you start to feel like you're going to use. Tired due to lack of sleep, irritability, or just being over it. I'm tired of my boss. I'm tired of going to work. I'm tired of fighting traffic. I'm tired of fill in the blank. That doesn't necessarily mean sleepy tired. That can just mean over it. And that goes back up to anger again. So you want to look at why are you so irritable? Why are you over it? Why are your um, reserves for dealing with life on life's terms so depleted right now? My guess is you're not nurturing yourself. You're giving and giving and doing and doing and not taking time to replenish and really get grounded and remind yourself who you are, where you are, and where you want to be. The purpose is to assist in reducing unnecessary stress and relapse triggers and provide prompts for new coping skills. This is the purpose of relapse prevention training, to assist in people identifying, why am I letting this bother me? Are there other routes I can take to work so I don't have to engage in all of the traffic and everything else that stresses me out? Can I go to Walmart at 10 o'clock at night when the lines are a lot shorter so I don't have to stand in a long line and get irritable? What can I do to reduce unnecessary stress? That will change from week to week, from month to month. But people need to be able to identify for themselves the stressors that can just be pushed to the side because they're not necessary. I don't need to put myself through that. And provide prompts for new, new coping skills. For example, if you want somebody to start saying the serenity prayer when they feel stressed out, have them keep it in a card in their wallet. That's, you know, lots of people who have come to see me have lots of cards in their wallet. What else can they do to say the serenity prayer? Some people wear a beaded bracelet that says, God grant me on it, or something that whenever they look down at their wrist, they can see that. They can fiddle with it when they start to get stressed. Whatever the prompts are for your particular client, make sure they have those in the environment because when they're stressed, they're not going to think clearly and go, okay, now what were those coping skills I was supposed to start using? No, it doesn't happen. So how do we go about doing all this? Because there's lots of stuff. First, start out with what were your triggers and your relapse traps in the past? What do we already know? has caused you to go back out and use or to have cravings. Identify at least three healthy ways of dealing with them. So like I've said before, that magic three, one thing that may not always fit the bill. So give yourself three options. Call your sponsor, call your pastor, go on a run. Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> um, when a stressor comes your way, that way you always have a plan B and a plan C. 
make sure relapse prevention planning not only addresses the triggers and stuff, but serves to incorporate a healthy lifestyle so you build up those reserves and you have the energy to deal with life on life's terms. That includes exercise, laughing, enjoyment, good nutrition, good sleep. Make sure people plan for upcoming triggers and traps. For example, holidays, like we spoke of earlier. If you know that beginning November 15th until January 4th, it's just like the most stressful time because there's all kinds of social gatherings and things that cause you anxiety and shopping and all that other stuff, plan for it. Do your shopping early or do it online. Make sure you build up your reserves and you don't go into it just already exhausted because you've been trying to get everything done before you took three weeks off from work. Plan, prepare, and regenerate. And review your relapse prevention plan weekly. That's not just for the first month of recovery or the first six months of recovery. You should be reviewing your relapse prevention plan every day for the rest of your life or at least weekly, because things change. Kids move out, loved ones die, people move away, you buy a new house. I mean, there's good stress, there's bad stress, there's lots of stuff that changes. So make sure you review it weekly and you're including any new stressors and taking out any that may not be applicable anymore. Principles of relapse prevention. Self-regulation. The first thing we need to do is help you get stabilized. You need to detoxify from alcohol and drugs. Solve your immediate crises that threaten sobriety. For example, maybe somebody was in a relationship and because of their substance use got kicked out of the house and now they're homeless. That's an immediate crisis that's going to threaten their sobriety. We need to look at Maslow's hierarchy and make sure they've got those biological needs met first. Learn skills to identify and manage post-acute withdrawal and addictive preoccupation. That's that period between early detoxification and the um, pink cloud where there are periods where you feel really crappy, protracted withdrawal, and you think about the substance. You think about using almost all the time. How do you deal with your cravings, with your thoughts, with your ideas? And establish a daily structure that includes proper diet, exercise, stress management, and regular contract, contact with treatment personnel and or your sponsor. Principle two is integration. So you take a self-assessment and reconstruct the presenting problems in the alcohol and drug use history. You figure out why is it that you started using and why is it that you're continuing to use. Identify these critical issues that can trigger relapse. Do you use when you feel rejected? Do you use when you're exhausted? What is it that leads you to start really thinking about using and have cravings? These are your critical issues. In reconstructing your re recovery and relapse history, Identify the recovery tasks that were completed and the ones that were ignored. A lot of times people skip over stuff. Nah, I don't need to write my autobiography this time. Yeah, you do. Every time people write their autobiography, 
they seem to remember something a little bit differently, or they remember pieces that they hadn't remembered until now. It's important to do the process and do it thoroughly. People who do the 12 steps in 12 weeks have missed a lot. So what recovery tasks did they miss? What did they complete? What worked? What didn't? And identify the sequence of warning signs that lead back to alcohol or drug use for you. Some people, it starts with just throwing yourself into work and working too much so you don't have to deal with life. Then you get tired. Then you get irritable. Then people don't want to hang out with you. Then you start using. For some people, it's spending a lot of time maybe going to football games and hanging out with people who are drinking and saying, well, you know, I don't have to drink, but I can be at this party. Whatever it is for that person that is constitutes the sequence of warning signs for use. Provide accurate information about what causes relapse and what can be done to prevent it. There are lots of causes, and the causes differ for different people. But they're the same in many cases. There's pain, there's anxiety, there's something that feels yicky. And that can include boredom. Some people just miss the high highs. And there's not a lot in a clean and sober life that quite equates with the high that people feel when they're on crack. So what can we do to help them feel fulfilled and energetic? How can we help them get through that first year or two where their neurochemicals are getting rebalanced and everything is just kind of gray? There's no highs, there's no lows. We want to provide them information about the biopsychosocial model of addictive disease. That means how does addiction affect you physically, psychologically, that stinking thinking that we talk about, and socially? How has it changed how you interact with people and who you interact with? Identify common stuck points in recovery for that person and just in general. The 30-day medallion. Some people have a real difficult time getting past that. The six month, the one year, certain holidays. These can be stuck points where people have difficulty getting past them without a relapse. What are some complicating factors in relapse? For example, you lose your sponsor. That person moves away or passes on or dumps you for some reason. That kind of tells you that you've probably started down a relapse path if your sponsor says, come back to me when you're ready. How to identify warning signs. Most of us realize that our sober social supports see the relapse way before we do. But we don't like to hear it when they say, ah, dude, think you need to make a meeting. No, I don't. That's that thinking, thinking, and that control person an effective recovery planning if you slip and that doesn't mean you have to use if you start to slip emotionally or you start hanging out with people who use or you start engaging in some of these behaviors that eventually will probably lead to a full-blown relapse how do you pick yourself back up do you call your sponsor hopefully what else do you do have a list an emergency plan 
self-knowledge means learning to identify the sequence of problems that led to relapse in the past and how to prevent them in the future. And we've already talked about that some. Develop a personal relapse warning sign list and review warning signs. Make an initial warning signs list. Analyze them and then make a final warning signs list. Every time you relapse, it's going to be a little bit different. But generally, there are certain characteristics that are present in every relapse. Those are your final warning signs. If you have a list that's 30 items long, it's going to be hard to know when you're relapsing and when you're just having a bad day. So pare it down to the top five or 10 that you know, ooh, when I start feeling like this, it's not long before I slide down that slippery slope. Think about irrational thoughts, unmanageable feelings, or self-esteem behaviors that you engage in when you're on your way to a relapse. I must do this. Nobody loves me. Um, catastrophizing. Thinking everything has to do with you. Well, she bit my head off, so she must hate me. Really? Um, look over the list of irrational thoughts. Keep it somewhere in your journal so you can look over the irrational thoughts and cognitive distortions that are common in stinking thinking. There are certain warning signs that are related to core psychological issues, problems from childhood, such as a poor relationship with your parents, never feeling like they approved of you, or not being able to have friends when you were little. And those that are related to core addictive issues, which is warning signs that are related or that developed while you were in your addiction. Maybe before you started into your addiction, you weren't lying and manipulative and snippy. But once you developed your addiction, you figured out, hey, these are behaviors that work for me to get people to go away so I can do my thing. When patterns of addictive thinking justify relapse are reactivated, you can pretty much guarantee you're right on the verge of returning to substance use. So when that stinking thinking comes back, you better run to your sponsor. <laughs> warning sign management means learning how to cope or manage your warning signs as they occur. You can manage them on three different levels. The situational behavioral level, don't put yourself in a situation where you're gonna wanna use. The cognitive level, where you challenge your irrational thoughts and deal with the feelings that are caused by them, such as nobody loves me or I must be stupid because I can't do anything right. Now, generally, I, I've never met anybody, to date at least, who can't do anything right. So it's that all or nothing thinking that can start leading to un unmanageable feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. So challenging your cognitive distortions and identify core addictive and psychological issues then initially create these warning signs, such as depression. If you know that you actually are clinically depressed and you start having a depressive episode coming on, you need to be able to identify what that feels like versus just having a kind of a bad day. What does it feel like when you start getting anxious and having an anxiety or a panic attack? How do you deal with that in a way that's not using? Develop a schedule of recovery activities that help patients recognize and manage warning signs as they develop. 
Remember I said review your relapse prevention plan at least once a week. Engage in your daily meditations every morning. Make sure you have something that's a cue for when you start to get stressed, anxious, or angry when you're dealing with life because that happens. Things just develop and you may be in the middle of I-95 and you've got to figure out how to deal with it. Review the warning signs on your final warning sign list and ensure that there's a scheduled recovery activity for each. So remember I talked about the big five, the characteristics that have been present in each and every relapse. Make sure that you have at least three ways to deal with each one of those. Calling your sponsor should be listed for every one of them. And then figure out other ones in case you can't reach your sponsor at that very moment and you're in crisis. Complete daily inventories to monitor compliance with the relapse recovery program and check for the emergence of relapse warning signs. Checklists are wonderful. A lot of people don't do them. But make sure you have that time where you can do your daily, daily meditation and you can review your day and get grounded, not only for relapse prevention, but for personal growth. What things did I let bother me today that really took more energy than they should have? Use a morning inventory to plan the day. Have a word for the day, like hope or honesty or patience. And use that word to guide your actions throughout the day. An evening inventory helps people review progress and problems that occurred throughout the day. So if your morning inventory said that your mantra for today was patience and you found yourself becoming impatient throughout the day, review that and figure out why. That way it doesn't happen again. Life is a learning process. Whether you're in recovery from substance use or depression or anxiety or nothing at all, life is a learning process. Involve other people in your recovery. They will see changes in you before you're ready to see them. You'll be like the little monkey that sees no evil, hears no evil, and speaks no evil. You don't want to admit that you may be having difficulty dealing with life on life's terms or preventing relapse. The more psychologically and emotionally healthy your support people are, the more likely they are to be helpful because they're not worried that if they say something to you, that you will abandon them or that you will bite their head off and it will absolutely make them crumble. Update your relapse prevention plan on a monthly basis for the first three months, quarterly for the remainder of the first year, and twice a year for the next two years and annually thereafter. So we're going to actually update it. I personally think you should review it every week just to stay focused, but then actually updating it and tweaking things can be done a little less frequently. Nearly two-thirds of all relapses occur during the first six months of recovery. Why? Because we still haven't uncovered all those blind spots, and we haven't mastered the new coping skills and the new ways to deal with things and learned or developed the confidence that we actually can survive being emotionally upset, and it's not going to kill us. Less than one quarter of the variables that actually cause relapse can be predicted during the initial, tre initial treatment phase. 
So more than 75% of your stuff is covered up. You've got blinders. You can't see it yet. You don't want to remember it. You can't remember it. A relapse prevention plan update session involves a review of the original assessment, warning sign list, management strategies, and recovery plan. An update of progress on problems since the previous update, incorporating new warning signs and management strategies for those, and elimination of activities that are no longer needed. For example, after the first three to six months, most people stop doing a morning and an evening inventory. They may just do one or the other. Meetings. Start out with 90 and 90. Some people are able to cut down to a few meetings a week after the first quarter. Some people continue going to meetings daily for at least the first year. Depends on the person. Gradual movement from a more intensive level of care helps people's new coping skills kick in and solidify. If you take somebody who's in residential where you're pretty much controlling their entire day, telling them when they're supposed to eat, providing all their food for them, and toss them out and say, okay, you know, you're in outpatient now. We'll see you once a week for an hour. Ah, you know, for the past 60 or 90 days, every time they've hit a stuck point or started to feel crisis, they've had a counselor or a sponsor or somebody they could go to. And then going to one hour once a week, that's too huge of a change. You need to gradually step people down to intensive outpatient. So they're ch checking in once a day. You're not there 24 seven, but you're there once a day to help them get regrounded and then gradually step down from there as they show they're able to stay clean and sober. When we're helping people develop a relapse prevention plan, we need to help them look at the past to identify reasons for past use. We can't predict, nor do we want to predict the future. But we know what has happened in the past, and we can learn from that. We can't change it, but we can learn from it. We want to plan for future stressors when we know they're coming. If you know you've got your six-month review with your boss coming up in a month, then you know don't start dwelling on it now. But a couple days out, make sure you take time to rejuvenate yourself and reaffirm your self-worth and everything else if that's something that stresses you out. And it's vital that we ensure that our patients have developed a sober social support system, not just a sponsor, but a system, which means ideally three to five other people, maybe their home group that they can call, who can also call them out on their crap. Because nobody can con a con. If you use these principles when you're working with clients and helping them develop their relapse prevention plan, I know a lot of them sounded redundant. However, redundancy is sort of the key to ongoing relapse prevention, especially in the first year or two after the cessation of use.